Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Symore Podcast, where we break down scientific issues relevant to the Baltimore community. My name is Natalie, and I'm a PhD student at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. As we are reaching the peak of allergy season, many of us are experiencing those common symptoms like itchy eyes, congestion, headaches, etc. So during today's episode, we're going to break down some of the reasons why we get allergies, why they may be worse living in a city, and what Baltimore is doing to combat those issues, particularly with children. To kick things off, we have Dr. T here, who is the former clinical director of the Division of Allergy and Clinical Immunology at Johns Hopkins Hospital to discuss some of the reasons why we get allergies. Thanks so much for being here with us today. It's my pleasure, Natalie. The word allergy has kind of evolved now in our language to describe something people don't like, or we start to group allergies and tolerance or sensitivities together. Is there a difference? How do we really define an allergy? We struggle with that definition a little bit in the allergy and immunology community to some extent, because it is used as a, a sort of pan term to describe many cases reactions. You know, classically, when, when an immunologist speaks about an allergy, it's something very specific. There's a antibody called IgE, and we all have this floating around, and we think we know what it was designed to be there for. Uh, But for reasons that are not fully clear, this antibody, this IgE antibody, is often elevated and often acts in an inappropriate fashion to induce allergic-type symptoms. And that includes the full gamut from things like a little bit of sneezing and and itchy nose all the way up to full-blown asthma attacks or severe headaches and sinus disease to even anaphylaxis and, and sometimes death. So there's a huge spectrum on the allergic reactivity, but certainly there are other types of reactions, as you alluded to, which include things like intolerances, which have nothing to do with IgE, but still cause all kinds of issues with folks. So that that creates a lot of confusion, and and it creates confusion for things like testing, and, and what are the expectations, what are the expectations for seasonal allergies. That's really what a, what a good allergist is, is meant to do, is help guide patients through uh, difficult uh, to understand information that's out there. And on that note of a kind of that spectrum of symptoms that people might be experiencing, one of the interesting things about allergies is that many people, including myself, don't experience things like seasonal allergies until later in life. Vice versa, um, children outgrow their allergies. Why does that happen? Why, why are some of us experiencing these allergies later in life? It is a very challenging question which you can delve into to some extent. There are a few things that we know. We know that allergies seem to be on the rise, and that's not only because of the diagnostic advances that have been performed and and awareness of allergies in general, but there's a true rise in the incidence. And we think that has something to do with perhaps industrialization, but it's probably more complex than that. It's, uh, there's no doubt that there's an interplay between genetics and the environment uh, that, that lead to the development of allergies. And I see lots of patients that may be living abroad in a particular region or region of the United States and don't have symptoms. And then they move at the age of 25 to Baltimore or to New York, and suddenly they manifest within a few years, very severe allergic symptoms. And, and that's a reflection of of the local pollens and some of the allergens that are present, but but also the genetics which they carry to some extent. 
some people bring up the, the hygiene hypothesis, or in other words, this idea that certain lifestyle decisions like excessive hand-washing, sanitizing, et cetera, can decrease your exposure to different microbes, which leads to more allergies later in life. But what, what does the science say about that, and where does it stand on that? Well, that, that's an excellent question, Natalie, and it's, it's very topical, of course, because of the pandemic. Um, our, in some cases, obsession over cleanliness and their need, in many cases, to, to make sure that we're washing our hands, wearing masks, and really limiting our exposures to viral particles has a sort of a double-edged sword in that it reduces our exposure to sort of everything in the environment. And, and that's sort of good and bad. This hygiene hypothesis that you allude to has been floating around for a couple decades now. And, and there is some evidence to support the fact that when we live in an industrialized uh, world, we're exposed to less microbes by definition. And, and that includes you know, the use of antibiotics, uh, hand washing, more, more clean environments, you, you name it, all the way down to uh, dishwashing and soaps. These sort of things, you know, essentially sterilize our world and our immune system, you know, is there for a reason. Our immune system is designed to constantly survey the environment and determine whether or not something entering our internal world is, is dangerous or not dangerous. And so the immune system tunes to those exposures. Well, the immune system has very, you know, millions of years of engineering to target those infections. And in fact, this IgE that I talked about earlier uh, is really poised to recognize some of those infections in part. And so it, it, it's really, we think the immune system um, and certainly the allergic side of the immune system would normally spend a lot of its attention towards these parasitic infections and these bacterial infections. If you take those parasitic infections away and you take those bacteria away by lots of hand washing and sitting in an office cubicle, not being exposed to, you know, farm animals. Well, you know, the immune system's still there. It's got to have something to do. And so it looks for any sort of foreign object or protein to attack. And, you know, it's what's ever available. And many times that's just dust mite that's in the office or, you know, pollen granule that happens to sweep by or, or my daughter's cat, for example, right? And it says, hey, this is, this is a foreign agent let's make ourselves attack cat protein or dust proteins. And, you know, you can argue that that's an inappropriately directed immune response. And in fact, that's what allergies are. By definition, they are a hyper-responsive or exaggerated response. I mean, certainly we need to hand wash and wear masks in this area of the pandemic, but that and many other things that we do in, in this industrialized world, unfortunately, has um, some downsides to it. And one of them may be that it doesn't train our immune system uh, to be aware of, of the things that it was designed to, to attack. I'll say one other thing about that, and that is, um, you know, the other place that this hygiene hypothesis had emerged from is, is from rural communities, um, you know, kids that grow up on a farm and are rolling around uh, with pigs or boars or, or cows or any sort of farm animals um, and playing and, you know, sort of eating dirt and that sort of thing don't have as much allergies, actually. Uh, so that's, that's very clear. And, and I think another proof of concept that, um, you know, there, there's, uh, there's two sides to the story. By all means, I suggest your audience continue to wash their hands and, and wear their mask when appropriate and, and be vaccinated. Um, 
you know, we have a separate issue that we have to contend with with this um, allergies. So many people with really strong allergies are pretty familiar with allergy shots and how inconvenient it can be to go to the clinic so often. But now allergy drops are becoming an, an easier alternative. Surprisingly, many people don't know they exist, though. Can you explain how allergy drops work? Absolutely. So, um, you know, in general, the, the term immunotherapy means um, allergen immunotherapy. There's also something called cancer immunotherapy, not to confuse the two. But allergen immunotherapy um, really involves introducing a person to the things that they're allergic to. And, and in initially very small doses and then sort of building that up over time so that their immune system, for reasons that are not fully elucidated, essentially says, you know what, maybe I should not be so excited when I see cat or, or dust mites or pollen granules. I'll just accept this. And we sort of beat the immune system into submission to some extent by, by giving exposure to these things. But, you know, there's all sorts of different routes to get that um, immunotherapy. We can inject it under the skin in a little subcutaneous injection. There's been studies where folks have injected the lymph nodes directly. And of course, there is sublingual immunotherapy where you can have a drop or a tablet placed under the tongue. And either way, in any of these scenarios, you're, you're getting allergen in uh, very high doses that, that with the attempt to attenuate the exaggerated hypersensitivity or the exaggerated immune response. You're absolutely right that there's, while there's tremendous amount of data on subcutaneous immunotherapy, one of the tried and true methods that we've used for almost a hundred years now, it does work. Uh, it is relatively safe. And, you know, about 80% of patients respond reasonably well to, to allergy shots. Um, that works for a lot of people, but but for others, you know, getting into the clinic a month is is not that convenient, and so they look for alternatives. and 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 the sublingual approach is an alternative, a reasonably a, a reasonable approach that allows you to get the immunotherapy at home. <clears throat> there are three that are FDA approved. That's you know, dust mite, ragweed, and the grasses. Sublingual immunotherapy has the advantage that it's, it's almost unheard of to have an anaphylactic reaction or major adverse reaction, and you get to do it at home. Uh, that's pretty cool. But, but some out-of-cost expenses in, in some scenarios is a barrier. And of course, you have to take it every day, right? So some of our patients say, you know what? I'd rather just come into the office once a month, get my injection. I don't want to have to take a, a drop or a tablet every day at home. It's pretty clear from Dr. T that our understanding of how allergies happen and why they occur in certain people are still being studied and will continue to see emerging treatments and therapies. Now I'd like to shift the conversation to understanding how allergies and asthma are impacting city dwellers, particularly children growing up in the city, and how a portable asthma and allergy clinic called the Breathmobile is changing lives. Our second guest is Dr. Bollinger, the University of Maryland Children's Hospital Breathmobile Director. We're so excited to have you here today to discuss all the great work going on with the Breathmobile. Thank you, Natalie, for having me. So oftentimes people might group asthma and allergies together. Are they related? What's the difference? Well, for sure. It's a, a, asthma is an allergic disease, and particularly in children. We know that if you test a child with asthma, 90% of the time, you're going to find at least one environmental allergen. That's something. So it's an allergic disorder. So identifying those triggers by doing allergy testing is really important so that you can try and um, mitigate exposures if, if at all possible. 
we as an allergist, we think of asthma as an allergic disorder. Actually, in adults, we thought that maybe allergy played less of a role, but it's about 60% of adults actually will have an allergic trigger too. So, so they're very common comorbid conditions. And in fact, we see a lot of children that will develop what we call the allergic march, where they may start with other allergic disorders like eczema or food allergy, and then they kind of march and develop nasal allergies and then asthma. I just had a child yesterday where we saw that and started with as a baby, some of these other disorders and now through age three has developed pretty much classic allergic asthma. So we see that all the time. So they're very closely related. Now, can you have nasal allergies without asthma? Absolutely. Um, And it's actually interesting how some people do develop an asthma component and others don't. Really not clear why that happens in some people. Are there more children in the city with asthma and allergies? We know that there's a higher prevalence of asthma in children, Baltimore City versus the rest of the state. Um, The estimates for the state is about 9% of children have an asthma diagnosis versus Baltimore City. It can be 20% or higher. And we have actually a couple of kindergarten classes where we've gone as as much as 50% reported prevalence. And also we know that children with asthma in Baltimore City are three times more likely to end up in an ED or hospital versus the rest of the state, and also six times more likely to die. So we know it's a big issue. That's definitely not something many people would consider when they're moving to a city like Baltimore or even raising children in the city. Is there an explanation for why this prevalence is higher? We know that particularly in the inner cities, Um, the environment plays a huge role, particularly indoor. Um, People are also living in very close quarters. There's usually more people living in each household and also environmental exposures in the home. From an allergy standpoint, we know that for the inner city, exposures to pests such as mice and cockroaches are a big factor in poorly controlled asthma. And also, Environmental tobacco smoke, about half of our children have exposure to environmental tobacco smoke, and that's something that um, we also can, can address. And I would say there is some also impact of the outdoor environment from irritant exposure, such as pollution, exposure to other pollens, which is what we're experiencing right now, is also an issue in the city, but that's actually an issue around the state. When we talk about allergy, environmental allergies outdoor The state of Maryland and the Mid-Atlantic region is well known for increased uh, significant exposure to pollens that can impact the allergy significantly. So we're well known for uh, having outdoor allergen sensitivities. Anyone living in the Baltimore area might have already seen the big breathmobile truck, but can you describe what it is, how the program got started? Yeah, so the Breathmobile program actually was started in Los Angeles by an allergist in the Asthma Allergy Foundation out there. Actually, they started on the road in 1995. The idea was to bring specialty asthma care to kids that just don't have access to that. The idea was we know there's a big problem um, in the inner cities, and Los Angeles certainly has the same problems we do in Baltimore. So they started the program, and the idea was to bring the specialty care to the children because very few inner city children have access to those services and they've clearly been shown to be very effective in decreasing hospitalizations, emergency department visits. So we started the program and it's basically a specialty mobile clinic on wheels. It goes to schools 
and provides the care right there so that the kids don't have to miss an entire day of school, parents don't have to miss an entire day of work. And so <clears throat> that the idea is to bring it to them. Um, so we were contacted by the Asthma and Allergy Foundation, local DC, Baltimore chapter, over 20 years ago to see if we wanted to start a program here, knowing that Baltimore has a significant asthma problem as well. And they were able to provide us with the cost of the initial vehicle and in the first year of costs for the staffing. And then from there on, it was up to our Department of Pediatrics um, at University of Maryland to keep the program going, to develop it, et cetera. So we started, actually, it's almost to the day, our 20th anniversary of being on the road. So with the Breathmobile being this clinic on wheels, what happens aboard the Breathmobile? What kind of care do these children receive? We work closely with the schools. So the health aides in the school help us to um, identify the children. We actually have a survey that was developed and validated by the LA Breathmobile program. And so we will survey the school usually at the beginning of the school year. And then we go through the surveys, work with the health aide, and they help us actually schedule the children. So we go to the school, park out front, go in and, and have the child. Um, we ideally like to have the parent there, particularly they have to be there on the first visit. But then if after the first visit, we actually can now, especially with FaceTime and telemedicine, which we can talk about in a bit, we're able to also talk to the caregiver after subsequent visits about how the child is doing. So they come out on the bus, you walk in, we pre-COVID, now we're kind of on a limit in some of the respiratory testing that we do, but they get lung function testing through the little portable spirometer. Uh, we also have fractionated exhaled nitric oxide testing that we can do even in very young children. That also gives us some indication of the inflammation in their lung. And then they all can get allergy. They all get allergy skin testing to look for common indoor and outdoor allergens. So they get that all done. And then they also get, as I mentioned before, significant asthma education. We go over their inhalers. We teach them to make sure they're doing their inhaler properly. We give them the devices to attach their inhaler. So we make sure that's getting in there the correct way. And then we give them all the um, action plans, we call it, where it tells them what to do when um, at home, if they have an asthma flare. And we give the paperwork and medications to the school if they have to get their rescue inhaler medications at the school. Um, so it's definitely a collaborative effort um, among the school and the parents and, and the children. So it's basically what you would get if you went to see a specialist in, you know, an outside clinic or in our clinic in the hospital. It's the same services. It's just right on the bus, which makes it really nice. So you touched on this briefly, but how has the pandemic impacted the care? Right. So just with everybody else, we had to make some quick changes and it was very fortunate. We were able to transition to telemedicine very quickly, um, which was very important because, you know, we're very worried about our children with asthma. We want to make sure their asthma is well controlled in the event they did get COVID. So we quickly transitioned to that um, method of connecting with our patients through telemedicine. And then as the school started to reopen, we, we moved into a hybrid system where we could, could continue to provide telemedicine and then also start to see children in person. Now, as schools fully open, we see probably about 90% of the children in person and about 10% 
uh, still remotely. The other advantage of telemedicine is in the summertime when the schools aren't, there's not many schools open for summer school, uh, we're able to do telemedicine through them. And the other advantage of telemedicine is we can actually visualize the home environment, but also what medications they have in the home and how they're doing it. Like they're, you know, is their inhaler technique correct? So there's definitely been some advantages to to telemedicine, but we absolutely like to see the children in person. As you've described it here today, inner city asthma and allergies seem to be a huge problem here. But with the program like the Breathmobile, I imagine it's seen a huge impact. Can you describe the success of the program? We have seen significant improvement and it's pretty interesting around the country. There's programs in California. They actually have several in California, Phoenix, Arizona, Chicago. It's not called Breathmobile, but it's the same model, mobile care uh, for children. And then we are the only program on the East Coast. So we have some very different populations, but it's interesting to see our data is very similar. Um, And we actually have done some collaborative papers together and stuff. Our average of decreasing in hospitalizations and ED visits is between 60 to 70%. Missed school days due to asthma improved by at least 50%. And that's actually been fairly consistent over the 20 years because we track our data every single year. So that's been, you know, a really major improvement. We also did the cost analysis because everybody wants to know, okay, what does this cost? And we showed not only are we clinically effective, but cost effective as well. And showed that for every dollar spent on the breathmobile, $3 or three to five, depending on the cost, is saved. So it's very cost effective too, as well as clinically effective. Thanks so much again for being here with us today. As a final takeaway, what can we do to help support the breathmobile program? Yeah, so our program is entirely funded by grants and donations, and it's been very challenging. Actually, over the years, we've had, you know, some recessions and things like that, and particularly the last two years with the onset of COVID, one of our major funders was a retail organization. And with the with the pandemic, there's been a lot of effects on businesses. And so our greatest need actually is funding to keep it going. So that would be the biggest support, honestly, that we could have because we don't want to give up on these kids. They really need the services. And it's the only way to cut to provide that care. um, Because we just kids just don't have access like they should. If you want more information about the Breathmobile, we actually, you know, have ways people can refer patients that they know children that need service because we are primarily focused in Baltimore City, but we'll see kids from anywhere because there's kids that need services that don't have insurance or, you know, that situation. I always say if they can get to us, we'll see them. So we have uh, just in general information, referrals of patients, and it could come from providers as well. Our, our number is 410-706-4000. And then also any more information is through the UMMS, University of Maryland Medical System.org. And you can access information about the program there. And also links to our donation page if people are able to and willing to donate to the program. It's extremely appreciated because it's something we really are in need of. It was really great having you here with us. We're so thrilled to see that the Breathmobile program is making such an impact in the community. I appreciate you having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Breathmobile is always looking for donations, so check out their website and tell everybody you know about it. Also, if you enjoyed listening to this episode, please leave us a review and follow us on social media. If you're interested in hearing more content, then visit us at our website at anchor.fm-symore.